Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. You can hear us Monday through Friday from 12 to 2 p.m. on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. You can also hear us at SputnikNews.com and at Rumble.com slash Political Misfits. My name's John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, like always, we have a full show today with lots of important information from around the world. We're going to talk about Ukraine like we do just about every day. We also have some interesting stories about a case between the Seneca Nation and the state of New York. You're going to get into that. We'll talk about gun violence and we'll have a good conversation about politics. In the meantime, there are some other interesting stories making the rounds today. Yesterday, and I'm smiling because I love this story already. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, we told our listeners about Representative Madison Cawthorn, the 26-year-old Republican from North Carolina, who alleged in a podcast over the weekend that he had been invited to orgies, presumably by Republican members of Congress, and that he had attended parties where members of Congress were snorting cocaine. He likely made all this up to appeal to his base. But Republicans are furious in a way that is very rarely seen in Washington. Yesterday, in a closed-door session of the Republican Congress, I'm sorry, the Republican Caucus in the House of Representatives, several members stood up to denounce Cawthorn, calling him a kid and a punk, uh, and demanding that minority... (laughs) Minority leader Kevin McCarthy punish him. McCarthy said later yesterday that he would indeed uh, punish Cawthorn. We don't know what that punishment will be or when it'll be forthcoming. McCarthy um, said today that he supported a statement made by Representative Scott Perry, the chairman of the very conservative House Freedom Caucus, of which Cawthorn is a member, by the way. saying that it was time for Cawthorn to put up or shut up. What he means is that Cawthorn has to name names. If he was invited to orgies, who was hosting those orgies? I 100% support this. I really (laughs) want to know. I would be very excited. And it's, you know, I mean, I wonder what happens, right? Cawthorn is kind of a loose cannon oh, right yeah. like he seems yeah. like an idiot he's a loose cannon he says about it says things that i think are really not true like his whole you know, remember back when there was a there was about a a week when a certain segment of the internet was convinced that cawthorn was some kind of russian spy yes it's because he said something about like get, not having the right passport to go to <laughs> russia on this baltic cruise and like talking his way past a border agent or something like that. he says he exaggerates right? exaggerates terminally uh but i mean so who knows is he going to start is he going to name names of republicans he wouldn't is he going to just say oh actually i forgot it was ilhan omar which is maybe the most likely outcome right or is he going to say he made it all up i mean i think this is interesting i do too i think it's actually pretty important because and we'll talk about this on friday but because he's involved in some weird redistricting stuff going on Mm in north carolina and There is a group of North Carolina voters who are suing to keep him off the ballot in November because there is a line, one line in the Constitution that says that insurrectionists cannot run for federal office. And they're saying that because of the the um, statements that he made uh, on and after January 6th of last year, that he's technically an insurrectionist, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it's going to go very far. 
but he just has this weird way of getting himself in trouble. You know, there there were credible allegations that ran in uh, in the uh, New Yorker magazine just after he was elected, saying that he um, sexually assaulted a woman at this Christian college that he was attending and was forced to leave the college. And he says, no, I didn't like it. I wanted to go to a better school. Well, that's not what, you know, six different people who were at the school said. So this, this yeah, bears yeah. watching. I mean, he definitely, you know, he, he fibbed or allowed yep. it, allowed his, the, the cause of his injury to be misconstrued. Yes. And, yeah. He said so that he had been accepted to the Naval Academy and that was not true. He hadn't even applied to the Naval Academy. All kinds of stuff. I'm a little curious about what happened after the Civil War. Was no one who took part in that allowed to be part of government? Because isn't that a big criticism of, of, of Reconstruction you know and the rest, you know? It's funny that you raised that because I just read this yesterday. That these people were not treated as uh, traitors? Because and, yeah. they had voluntarily given up their American citizenship when they seceded. So, and, so technically they weren't Americans committing insurrection. Okay. I mean, sure. That's how that's how the uh, that's how the Congress got around it. Yeah, they thought it was better to bring the country together. Blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, it's Washington. Interesting how those carve outs. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Do you remember a couple of months ago we began seeing stories in the news saying that the social media platform TikTok was dangerous because it was collecting information on our children? Oh yes. Yeah. Well, and it was sending, sorry, sending information to the Chinese government. Yeah, I mean, there's U.S. soldiers were not allowed to have TikTok on their phones. I I recall talking to some um, uh, people who work in the sort of orbit of the orbit of the DNC saying uh, they were they were encouraged not to have TikTok on their phones and saying, all right, I took it off my work phone and keep it on my personal phone because this is all nonsense. Yeah. Well, it turns out it was nonsense. Oh, well, you don't say. Imagine that. It turns out it was all fake and it had nothing to do with the Chinese. The Washington Post is reporting today that this information about TikTok, which was all false, came from a Republican public relations firm that had been hired by Facebook to ruin TikTok so that they wouldn't compete with Facebook. It's not unusual to see this kind of bare-knuckle politics in a a campaign, but it is unusual to see two competing social media platforms go to war, Mm -hmm. and that's what this was about. The firm that Facebook hired is called Targeted Victory, and uh, which is scary. That sounds like a military operation, yeah. (laughs) And it planted op-eds and letters to the editor in newspapers around the country it planted stories in papers and on broadcast and cable news. And uh, when confronted with the information by the Post, Facebook just said no comment. Crazy. Dangerous. Yeah, very. Especially when it turns into a national security issue. That's right. And is used to sort of further this uh, Cold War we've been fomenting with China. And now we're kind of a little on the fence about now, uh, quite rightly. Right. Well, Wells Fargo announced something that was interesting. Oh, is it something that's going to be really good for the the common man? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's what it is. Uh Wells Fargo announced they would begin issuing credit slash debit cards Mm -hmm. on which you can put your rent Mm -hmm. and earn points and frequent flyer miles. The money would then be debited from a Wells Fargo checking or savings account. Mm The Federal Reserve says that Americans who pay rent by check or by debit card do that 50% of the time. So, so of all of us who rent, half of us pay straight out of our 
checking accounts. Yeah. Uh, people who pay with a credit card are usually assessed a 2 or 3% fee. And so out of the goodness of their hearts, because they're, you know, that's the kind of company Wells Fargo is, they're going to do this for zero uh, uh, service charge. And they're going to give you uh, frequent flyer miles on a credit card. Can you imagine? For, for most Americans, the, the, the rent that we pay is by far the biggest expenditure that we have every month. Can you imagine putting that on a credit card and think even subconsciously that you're freeing up money? Yeah. You end up living in your car. No, and all of these rewards programs, I mean, I like, I also like to get my 10% cash back or whatever, but in the back of my mind, I know like there's no, they're at best, I'm at best breaking even on this, right? There's no way any of these rewards programs that are so heavily marketed people are are, are doing anything to actually help us, right? They, They help Wells Fargo and all of these other companies. And so, yeah, the idea that Here's a big transaction that we don't have our claws in yet. Right. Let's find a way to get ourselves in on this transaction. And also that, you know, ultimately, like these people are going to be either adjacent to like these big organizations are going to be adjacent to or, in fact, be the very organizations that have uh, been part of the process of buying up all of the single family homes in the United States anyway. So now you're using your credit card to put your rent on credit. I mean, I'm sure the idea is going to be like, you know, pay it, then pay it off at the end of the month. You're not going to pay any fees on it and you'll just get the rewards. Win, win, whatever. Of course, they're, they're just banking on you making some kind of mistake. But the whole loop, it's just going yeah. back to one. It's going back to one entity in yeah, the end. Back eventually. to one entity. It's ridiculous. Exactly. Or what, ha, so has he, the possibility twice. of doing that. Yeah. yeah. I had a friend once who bought a house and somehow was able to put his mortgage on his American Express card every month. And he was saying, man, I get 100,000 frequent flyer miles every year. And I said, are you insane? If you if you can't make the credit card payment, it's not like you just, you know, get a bad credit rating. You lose your house on top of it. And now that's what they want people to do. Of course they do. And it's going to be like the reason I know about this also, by the way, is that I saw it was a, a gossip story. Eric Adams partying with ASAP Rocky and Cara Delevingne at a party being thrown to announce the, you know, the the great launch of this wonderful product for American uh, housing consumers. We should now call ourselves people seeking access to housing. Yeah. Housing consumers. Well, efforts to have Justice Clarence Thomas recuse himself from any cases involving January 6th defendants seem to be picking up steam after texts sent by his wife, Ginny Thomas, to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows were made public. Ginny Thomas called on Meadows to intervene to make sure that Joe Biden did not become president when the Electoral College vote was taken on January 6th. So far, though, Thomas has stood firm and has refused to recuse himself. In the not so distant past, and I looked this up today, Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas was forced to resign after being threatened with impeachment for doing far less than this. Uh, Jane Mayer of the New Yorker magazine, whose you know, Pulitzer Prize winning sets the gold standard for investigative journalism, has published a revealing piece about Ginny Thomas. Um, this is another one of those stories that bears watching. And, you know, a friend of mine the other day told me, a lawyer who knows these these people. He said, you know, Ginny Thomas, we, we should be careful not to underestimate her. She used to be the general counsel for the Chamber of Commerce. She's she was a mover and a shaker in Washington legal circles in her own right. 
not just because she happens to be married to a Supreme Court justice. She's a serious attorney in Washington. She should know better than to do things like this. And now she's put her husband's position in in jeopardy. So again, it bears watching. So we're going to have a lot more coming up. Hey, can I tell you one quick story that I just saw? I think this is really interesting. Uh, This is from uh, the, what is this called again? The Once Daily Digest from Wall Street on Parade, which is a very fun uh, read. The uh, House Subcommittee, uh, House Financial Services Subcommittee uh, on Oversight and Investigations is next Tuesday going to hold a hearing on the role of U.S. banks in financing the horrors of slavery. Huh. Yeah, exactly. That was sort of my, that was my reaction because they went, I mean, I guess it kind of goes along with the anti-lynching bill being signed into law yesterday. Right, after 70 Um, years. And the, the, it really seems to be that they are looking at their roles in financing slavery centuries ago. And of course, you know, by all means, right? Yeah, look look into that. Find it. Okay. See if there's a way to make reparations. Not a lot of work to look into their role in financing like modern day slavery, right? We on this show have followed the case of the, I believe it's five or six men from Mali who took yes. their case to the Supreme Court, that they were trafficked as children and forced to work as slaves in That's cocoa right. plantations, uh, servicing, serving Nestle and Cargill yeah. and a bunch of other uh, big name chocolate brands. Uh, Supreme Court was like, well, it's happening too far away. We We don't have jurisdiction, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, okay, interesting. By all means, look into that. I would be more excited if there was a little bit more scrutiny into these financial institutions and their their roles in uh, supporting modern day exploitation and slavery. I would like that. Maybe that'll be the, maybe that'll be next week. Yes. But not next year because the Republicans will be in charge. Right. (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with Michelle Witte. Russian troops appear to be withdrawing from the area around the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, or Kiev. I still can't get used to that. Kiev. Whatever. Although local officials report new attacks in the northern Ukrainian city of Chernikhev. And I have no idea if that's how you say that. Oh, yeah, that I forgot to check that yesterday and I had to do this. I think I said it roughly the way you did. My apologies. Peace talks between the two sides continue in Istanbul with progress apparently being made at least on a framework for continued discussions, which is great. I mean, both sides said essentially the same thing today, that they didn't make a ton of progress like they did yesterday, but they're still talking and there are some big ideas that are coming out. Uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov will travel to Delhi tomorrow for trade talks with his Indian counterpart. That's a big deal for the Russians. It appears that they're going to discuss future trade taking place in rubles and rupees, which is going to be very interesting to see how they figure out how to do that. In Europe, French President Emmanuel Macron said that it would be impossible for France and for many other European countries to pay for Russian gas in rubles. And in Athens, Greek authorities held an emergency meeting to determine how to meet the country's energy needs 
Greece imports 100% of its gas and oil. So they're stuck. As a state trooper once told me when he pulled me over for speeding on I-95, you are S-T-U-K stuck. Well, we're joined by David Walalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant, a global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst here in Washington, D.C. He's the host of the Geopolitics in Conflict show on YT, which is excellent. His latest book is called The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking of the Global Order. Welcome back, David. Good to be with you, John. We're very happy to have you. Thanks for doing this. We heard some breaking news this morning that Ukraine will agree with a Russian demand that it remain a neutral country if it receives security guarantees from Western countries. But isn't a Western security guarantee de facto NATO membership? Is this a position that would be acceptable to the Russians? And what I mean by this is the Ukrainians are going to say, "Okay, we're neutral and we're not going to join NATO. but..." If Russia were to attack us in the future, NATO would protect us like we were members of NATO. Doesn't that sort of defeat the whole purpose of neutrality? Well, you're absolutely correct, John. The reason I'm laughing, I'm not laughing out of the <laughs> chasm somehow because it's almost I feel like uh, basically what the West wants is it wants to repackage the uh, the uh, Ukraine being uh, some sort of quasi-member of NATO. Right. Well, the bottom line, as you alluded to at the beginning, at the opening of your segment here, is that the talks in Turkey, uh, I would personally uh, characterize them as substantive to a degree. Uh It doesn't mean that Russia is going to agree to to all this. Russia is going to have to study now the proposal. But at the same time, if Ukraine is saying, well, sure, we will go with neutrality, but we will have uh, the sort of guarantees uh, well, it defeats the point for why Russia is doing what it's doing. That means what? That means NATO members will have to come in and at some point, whatever they feel like it, whether they are invited or not by the Ukrainian government. You know, I mentioned yesterday that there are a lot of countries around around the world who who are not NATO members, but who have this status that the United States calls major non-NATO ally status. So even though they're not in NATO, if, for example, Bahrain were to be invaded by Iran, the United States would have to respond and defend Bahrain or Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or a whole bunch of different countries. Is that what the Ukrainians are looking for here? And, and again, it seems to me that that's exactly what the Russians would not want to see on their border. Well, you're absolutely correct, Johnny. You hit the nail on the head because it's all about the wording of it. You know, of course, the, uh, the, the West is not going to say, well, we're going to consider uh, Ukraine as a non-member, uh, a NATO non-member. But that's exactly what they're looking for. I do not believe Moscow will agree to that one way or another. And this is why you are seeing the talks. Uh, they are progressing somehow, but that doesn't mean they are definitive because you got the issue of the Crimea and you got the issue of the of the uh, independence new state. Right. Russia's going to have to secure, while at the same time, Ukrainian proposal has offered about 15, I believe, 15 year timeline for negotiations. 15, that's right. 15 years. Yeah. I don't think so. Russians going to agree because those are key strategic uh, issues to Russia for why it is doing what it's doing and rightly so for its own security. 
David, the Russian government announced yesterday that it would begin withdrawing troops uh, from the area in northern Ukraine around Kiev and would redeploy those troops to Donbass. Uh, Ukrainian observers have confirmed that the troops are moving out in an orderly fashion, uh, maybe not terribly quickly, but they're moving. Uh, but if you look at today's Washington Post and New York Times, uh, they tell us exactly the opposite, that the Russians have actually stepped up attacks in the north. Do you have any idea what's happening on the ground? Can you clarify any of this for us? Well, I will start by saying, should we trust the Washington <laughs> New York Times? <laughs> Right. I mean, I mean, let's. Uh, I'm not being. Maybe I'm not joking here. But but let let's be realistic about how the media here in the United States is swaying the people's thinking. This is why so many Americans are so confused about what's going on, and yet we are pushing the chaos forward. So now I did get confirmation personally that there are certain troops moving out of certain areas around Ky- around Kiev, because here's the thing. The Russians did not, did not want to go inside Kiev. Right. And the point is they surrounded the city. Of course, to them, Donbass area, that is now the, the focus area. Mariupol area, that is the focus now for strategic reasons. You know, Kiev is where it is. They are not going to be. Uh, it's like what I predicted way back, how this is going to end up, is that you're going to end up having the country separated into two sections. One in east, yeah. one in west. The east one's going to be under Russia's sort of, I will use the term, not controlled, but it will be mainly inhabited by speak, a Russian-speaking population. I think that's, I think that's the, the most likely outcome right there. Uh, the, the Russian government said just a few hours ago uh, at uh, 10 o'clock this morning, Eastern Time, that there have been no breakthroughs in peace talks in Istanbul. Can you comment on what the sticking points might be? I would assume this neutrality issue and the status of the breakaway republics. But uh, what should we be looking for here? Uh, actually, because the Russians need to study the proposals by the, uh, by, the by the Ukrainians. Remember, just for your listeners to know, who's making the proposal? <laughs> it's not the Ukrainian government. It's the West. Yeah. It's NATO and the U.S. I mean, let's, let's, let's just put things for uh, how they are and state them how they are. Zelensky cannot make any decision on his own, no matter what you hear, no matter what, you, what they say. It is the West that decides because he is managed by the West. That's the bottom line to it. So basically what Russia is going to do is they're going to study the proposal, and I am certain and convinced, and the win what I know is that this idea of the neutrality doesn't set well with the Russians based on what the Ukrainian wants. Basically, what the Ukrainian wants, they want to have it both ways. We want it to be declared independence, uh, declared neutrality, so the Russians can, you know, step back from the military operations and so forth. But also, we wanted to have the guarantees by the NATO members or support from whoever that is. So far, they are saying, who's these Western countries? They didn't disclose the West, except for Canada and Israel. That's about it. But if we are to dig deeper into what they are referring to, is at, at the heart of it is Article 5 of NATO. Right. And, you know, another thing that people aren't really talking about, too, and, and I, I concede that it's still early in the process, is uh, nobody's talking about uh, European Union membership which is, you know, mutually exclusive to NATO 
but I mean, at least it's supposed to be. But would the Ukrainians be able to apply for EU membership and still remain neutral? I thought, why would that be mutually exclusive? Because you don't have to be in NATO and in the EU. There are some countries oh, you that don't have in, to be, but you it's uh, there. Yeah. There's some crossover. Yeah. yeah. But they're not mutually exclusive. Right. They're not mutually exclusive. OK, I was. Confused. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, tell us a little bit, David, about this rubles for gas idea. This just seems so complicated to me. The French are saying that it's impossible. The Greeks are going to try to figure it out. The Poles said today they're not even going to talk about it. The Indians are all for it. But how can a country convert so much money into rubles to pay for goods, especially goods that are indispensable, like like gas and oil? Well, basically, the reason this one, by the way, which I wrote some articles about it a couple of years ago, about three or four years ago, indicating that the, the demise of the U.S. dollar is inevitable. Let's just say it straightforward, because the system cannot sustain itself. And, and we'll get into why later on. But here is the point for why the ruble, why uh, President Putin asked for the ruble. It's putting the Europeans right on the spot that you will not get gas for free, and you have to pay for it in rubles, which means what? It means basically the Europeans will have to go and purchase the rubles. And what that's going to do to the rubles' value, it's going to increase it. Why? It's because Russia has already about $640 billion in reserves. Out of the, out of the $640 billion, it has about $153 billion in gold. Mm. Okay? So that means Russia is securing some sort of a rainy day funds, if you will. Mm -hmm. Then now, Europeans, if they want the gas, they're going to have to go buy the rubles, okay? and pay for it that way. This is why, what I found very interesting, and for your listeners to know, it's not a coincidence that the Russian president stated this a week ago, a week and a half ago. It was all, all, almost simultaneously with what Saudi Arabia stated when they said they are considering accepting payments for oil shipments to China in the Chinese yuan. Right. Right. What does it mean? It means now that there is that global shift into getting rid of the U.S. dollar and moving into the other direction. And this is why you see in India, it's moving that direction. China and Russia establishing the financial structure for this. Venezuela has just signed a deal with Russia that they're going to go through their own so-called SWIFT system bypassing the U.S. dollar. That's right. That's where it's headed. And all this, just for your listeners to know, this is part of the shift from a unipolar system into a multipolar system. I think that's exactly right. You know, there's been talk about this really going back to the 1970s. And it, it always had to do with uh, replacing the dollar in oil transactions with what they call a basket of currencies. And that's just been overtaken by events. I, I think you're right. This is this is a shift to a multipolar world where Countries are going to be able to do business as easily in yuan as they are in dollars. That's where we're headed. Exactly. And this is why, John, this is why the, the recent G7 meeting, what was one of the top agenda on its list was the rejection of the demand by uh, Vladimir Putin's request that they pay for their natural gas in the, uh, the Russian ruble. The first thing they agreed on is that 
we're going to have to reject this because they know what it means. I mean, the Russians didn't even ask for the euro. And it tells you right there where things are headed. Yes, I think you're right. Hey, let's talk about domestic issues for a few minutes. President Biden's approval ratings hit a new low uh, over the last day or so. 70% of Americans say they have low confidence. That's the word, low confidence in Biden's ability to handle the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 80% worry that the war will raise gas prices or could involve nuclear weapons. Biden's overall rating is just 40% down from 42 or 43% with 55% disapproving. You cannot win a presidential election with numbers like that. What does Joe Biden need to do to turn things around, especially with midterm elections coming up so soon? It won't be easy for him to because he's he's the, he's our representative on the global stage, right? But if you have a foreign policy that is so ambiguous, that is so contradictory, you know, we say one thing and do another. We promise things, but we do not deliver. We sign treaties, but do not observe the uh, legality of those treaties. You know, the world's going to see that. So the president is in a bad spot. As a matter of fact, some of the polls that I watched and checked, it showed him at 34. Wow. The low it is, which is bad. You know, it is a foregone conclusion, in my opinion. I could be wrong. Uh, I don't know. I'm just expressing my opinion based on where I see the trend, is that the Democrats are going to lose control of Congress in, in the midterm elections, and most likely even the presidential elections, because where things are headed domestically, for example, inflation. Did we ever talk about inflation? What's going on? The rise prices, uh, the, the, rise, the rising of, of, of goods, the prices of goods and so forth. Do we talk about this? No. Instead, the president went ahead and signed, for example, the lynching bill today or something like it has to do with this. Yep. He did that yesterday afternoon, right? Yeah. Do we care about it? I mean, come on. There are, there are American families starving. And oh. yes, we are worried about, you know, it's nonsense. I want to go to uh, realclearpolitics.com, which I, I tend to quote a lot, but here are all the latest polls. And these, these are polls that were released this morning. Uh, Politico morning consult poll, uh, f- approve 42, disapprove 54. Rasmussen reports, approve 41, disapprove 58, if you can imagine. Economist, uh, approve 45, disapprove 49. Get this, congressional job approval from The Economist, approve 16 and disapprove 59. Yeah, and uh, to the question, is the country headed in the right direction or the wrong direction? Uh, Economist poll has right direction 28, wrong direction 61, and Politico has right direction 30, wrong direction 70. So, yeah, people are pretty upset. Yeah. And, and, and numbers, John, do not lie. No. Numbers do not lie. I mean, Americans are really, really so confused, so perplexed with what's going on. And at the same time, our economy is going some other direction. This is when I hear uh, the White House coming up with statements like, for example, we're going to sanction China. Do you really know what you're talking about? Seriously. Sanctioning China, do you know if they reciprocate by taking the same measures, what's going to be happening to us here as far as the prices of goods? And Americans now live in paycheck to paycheck, 
they are wondering, you know, do I go fill up my gas tank or do I buy dinner? Right. Both. Right. An American family shouldn't be put into that spot. And we are squandering money, wasting with this quantitative easing nonstop. Right. Till when? All this would have to stop. David, one more word on polls. Uh, Harvard University um, and the Harris poll came out with a poll yesterday that's fascinating. Uh, If Donald Trump were to be the Republican nominee, they have Trump beating Biden uh, 47 to 41, which is not even close in a presidential election. And if Biden were not the nominee, they have Trump beating Kamala Harris 49 to 38, which is landslide territory. Um, You know, I remember a a political science professor of mine in college, and granted, this is a long time ago, but um, he said that that for the Democrats, about 33 percent of voters would vote for Adolf Hitler if he were the Democratic nominee. Right. There there are people that are just so staunchly, solidly Democratic. The Democrats are going to get 33 percent no matter what. For the Republicans, they're a little bit more loyal. They have more party loyalty. They're about 40 percent that are going to vote for the Republican no matter what. And so the rest is is all about independence. And it seems to me that the Biden administration is doing little to nothing to attract independence. And that's not necessarily to mean moderates. Yeah. Because there are a lot of progressives who are independent. I think that's a really good point. Independent is not necessarily this in the middle, supposed middle of the road sliver of people who can be swayed one way or another, which is, I I think, really sort of meaningless and just an excuse for the Democrats to continue to get more and more right wing. I am curious what both of you think. I think if you had asked me uh, six weeks ago about uh, a possible showdown between Biden and Trump, you know, before before this invasion, before this war started, I would have given Trump better odds. And I actually think that I I think that Trump, you know, because because he was erratic on foreign policy and because I don't know if he would be as enthusiastic about uh, supporting Ukraine in this, I think Trump actually loses some support he might have had otherwise. I think this conflict, uh, even though I mean, even though Biden's numbers are in the tank, I don't think this helps Trump. If he decides totally to run again agree. in 2024, and I don't I don't really think that's going to happen. But totally I, I think- agree. I think that Trump and David, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, too. I think that Trump's support within his own party has been eroding. That erosion has been slow. But once people start to break out of the pack and I'm thinking, you know, DeSantis really is the, the top guy right now. After the midterm elections, we're going to hear less and less from Donald Trump. And I think he's going to begin to just sort of fade into the into the past. What do you think, David? Correct. Well, actually, actually, the way I see it, and I'm going to be thinking outside the box here, uh, John, the idea of uh, as one who's been in Washington, D.C., so we kind of know how that kind of works when it comes down to something like this. It's basically they're going to try to marginalize Trump from ever. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. I'm I'm saying it nicely here. Oh, you know what I'm referring to here? In a way that, you know, Trump might be, that's it, things of the past. DeSantis, on the other hand, might not even want to go that route of running because he'll be better off where he's at versus in Congress, in in White House, because he knows he's going to be faced with members in Congress that's going to stall any agenda he will propose or any legislative. So he's better off. He's yeah. Better off. You know, it's it's funny to me how 
every new president arrives in Washington and thinks he's going to just change everything. And the city changes them. They're not going to change anything. You know, the status quo is the status quo, and it's been like this for a century or more. And so, yeah, nobody's changing anything. Hey, let me ask you about this uh, CNN report we saw today that the federal investigation of Hunter Biden is heating up. Uh, It's being done in Delaware by the U.S. attorney for the state of Delaware, and it's focusing on money laundering, tax evasion, and failure to register as a foreign agent. And yesterday, Representative Representative Matt uh, Gates of Florida, who has his own problems, um, entered the Hunter Biden laptop hard drive into the congressional record. What, what does all this mean? Should we expect criminal charges soon? Well, that's exactly the point to why uh, Matt Gates made the, uh, the move that way, because once he enters into the record, then it will be thought, I won't, be used, I won't use the term easy to pursue, but it will be feasible now to pursue that uh, indictment per se. And the way I see it playing out is that when Hunter Biden is convicted and go to prison, that's going to step in and issue a pardon before he leaves office. Yeah, I, I could see that happening. Well, that was a lot to talk about. We're going to leave it there. Thank you for joining us, David Walalu. He is an international geopolitical consultant, a global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. You can see him on the show Geopolitics in Conflict, which is on YT, and his latest book is called The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking of the Global Order. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take a short break and come back with our next guest. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. We mentioned yesterday that the Biden administration has proposed a new multi-trillion dollar budget that includes a huge amount of money for the development of green energy and funds to combat climate change. It hasn't been passed into law, of course, but it's a start. And while Congress debates this budget and its various proposals, Americans are debating what actually constitutes green energy, especially when it comes to vehicles. What is really clean over the long run? We'll talk about that with Guy McPherson. He's a scientist and professor emeritus of natural resources and ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona. Professor, welcome back. Thank you, John. Thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to chat with you again. Oh, the pleasure is ours. Uh, we we would like to first get your thoughts on uh, on this budget. You know, it's easy to talk about wind being clean and solar being clean, uh, but so many of us, so many Americans, uh, would love to be able to drive, for example, uh, an electric car, right, and not pollute the air with uh, with burning gas and having to worry about oil and and uh, you know just have it run what appears to be cleanly. But in order to manufacture that battery, you have to mine for lithium and other metals, and that's bad for the environment. So what are, what are we looking at in this new budget where it comes to things like 
lithium mining. And what can you tell us about the impact of that kind of mining on the environment? Well, please bear with me as I provide some context. Oh, I appreciate that. So-called clean energy. I'll try not to turn this response into a shaggy dog story. <laughs> and, I, and I'm trying to, going to try to anticipate a future question or two as well. Let's start with the Hirsch Report, published in February 2005. The report created by Robert L. Hirsch is titled, Peaking of World Oil Production, Impacts, Mitigation, and Risk Management. It was created by Hirsch upon request from the United States Department of Energy. Please keep the publication date in mind, February 2005. The Hirsch Report concluded that we would need 20 years' notice to prepare for world peak oil. We might be able to patch together something resembling civilization on only 10 years' notice if we throw everything we have at the issue in a mad scramble. The peak of oil extraction can only be determined in retrospect, of course. In retrospect, it was determined that the world hit peak conventional oil, sometimes called crude plus condensate, in 2005 or 2006. These numbers come from the conservative U.S. Energy Information Agency and also from the conservative International Energy Agency, respectively. The New York Times agreed with the latter assessment in an article published November 14, 2010. Remember, the Hirsch Report was published in February 2005, a year before the world hit the peak of conventional oil. In response, we scrambled. Digging deeper and deeper, chasing increasingly expensive oil, we pursued hydrofracturing until it was called fracking, otherwise known as business as usual. We discussed fracking on a previous episode of Political Misfits. Chasing increasingly expensive oil also brought us the aptly named Deepwater Horizon disaster for five full months in 2010. Remember, the Hirsch Report was published in February 2005. Not surprisingly, the mad scramble continues. We're trying to cobble together solutions that address the suicidal idea of infinite growth on a finite planet. Enter green energy. You can't tell on the radio, but I put green energy in quotes. Wind turbines and photovoltaic solar panels require rare earth minerals for their construction. These are called rare earth minerals for a reason. Trying to power the heat engine we call civilization with finite fossil fuels is insane. Trying to power the heat engine we call civilization with rare minerals is a few steps beyond crazy. A reminder, the Hirsch Report was published in February 2005, more than 17 years ago. We've been warned. Our response to dozens of warnings throughout history became the unspoken motto of civilized life. Must go faster. Yeah. In short, we are fully committed to implementing a solution that allows us to continue car culture. An individual automobile for each of us was never a good idea, but it's all we've ever known in this country. In the United States of automobiles, there is more than one registered vehicle for every licensed driver. To get to this point, to get to the primary point I'm trying to make here, one, fossil fuels are dirty, and two, lithium and rare earths are filthy. Yes, indeed. Can I, I want to follow up here because this is my other question. You know, I, I, I'm sure you're aware of that Michael Moore produced documentary, Planet of the Humans, that generated so much controversy. Um, but, but one of the things that I do think was important about it is that it's not just, as you're saying, it's, it's the, the same processes to get these different substances out of the ground that are going to facilitate, you know, this transition. But in a lot of cases, it's the same people and the same companies. And it seems like, you know, on one hand, you have, you know, John Stewart has some new new show where he addresses different issues. And they had a, a, a segment on 
climate change and fossil fuel companies. And he was talking to, about them as frenemies, right? Oh, okay, well, yeah, they've done bad things in the past, but they've got the machinery. They know how to do it. They've got the know-how. And so now we need to just turn them to good as though you just need a shift toward mining for a new thing and you don't need a shift in how to value local environments and local people and how to balance profit and human well-being right and and that to me seems also important i i do think it is i think it's significant that you can't just have the same old company that's been guilty of so many crimes in the past shift to mining a new substance and expect a different result absolutely you know we all, i think we all know this story after all, this in a nutshell is the story of America. The world has always faced a finite set of materials to power industrial civilization. The U.S. president, also known as the commander-in-chief, has always been charged with securing the materials we need to ensure economic growth. That was the entire point of the Carter Doctrine. Remember him? <laughs> the good great. guy president? Responsible for the Carter Doctrine? That's our oil over there? And by extension, that's our everything over there? That's always been the point. We tuck ourselves into bed each night, secure in the belief that somebody in charge, in charge will retain our privileges for us. It's easier to remain completely oblivious than it is to face the fact that our privileges come at a cost. So we just don't go there. And I don't mean to be too hard on the typical hardworking American. That's not my point here. My point is that we were born into this set of living arrangements. We know nothing besides this set of living arrangements. And if somebody tells us that we can keep this machine running with no cost, with no significant cost, then we're going to jump right on board. You know, the Biden administration administration is chasing solutions to our collective ad addiction. And that's what it is. Of course they are. Who wants to be known as the president who oversaw the collapse of civilization because we didn't have enough stuff to satisfy the people? Four days ago, The Economist published an article titled, The Transition to Clean Energy Will Mint New Commodity Superpowers. The subtitle reads, We Look at Who Wins and Loses. We all want to be the winners. We want our country to be the winner. We always want to keep this whole thing going, and we want to look the other way if it looks like there's going to be some adverse consequences. I have a friend who is running for Congress in a district in Southern California that includes the Salton Sea. And he told me just recently that there is trillions of dollars of lithium beneath the Salton Sea and that mining it would be the answer to the district's financial woes. Mining it would also provide jobs for any Californian who wants one. But what's, what's the trade-off for something like that? The Salton Sea is already just problem-laden. It's, it's filthy. It's poisoned. And he's talking about now going underneath it and extracting trillions of dollars of lithium. And all of this would be under the guise of being able to produce batteries for electric cars that are going to help to clean the environment. Tell us about the environmental costs that are involved, you know, locally and, and nationally with something like this. We have not figured out how to, how to build electric cars without fossil fuels. Again, this is the story of America. We want more. Always more. And we want to be told there is no cost. Of course, there are always costs. Our typical response is to look the other way. But car culture is expensive in many ways. Think about only the infrastructure required to maintain passageways for this one-person, one-vehicle system. The highways and the filling stations are among the costs, even if the latter are called recharge stations. It's the one-car-per-person mentality that created an environmental disaster under the guise of personal freedom. 
We have created a system that ensures we have personal automobiles and large appliances in every house, something never existed before World War II, and now we take it for granted. This system requires us to drive our personal automobiles to work, to shop, and to play. It's not only that we have become dependent upon personal automobiles, it's also that we have become slaves to these automobiles and to the system that they are part of. As with so many science fiction books from the middle of the last century, the machines have won. Or to, to put it another way, our so-called freedom has come with a lot of costs. Michelle mentioned something earlier to me that I thought was important, too. And it, it's a, a worry that we're going to see both an expansion of fossil fuel extraction and an expansion of mining for renewable energy. And the fossil fuels you know, are tied to the war in Ukraine, the, the slowdown or a cutoff of Russian oil production. Uh, can, you, can you see that happening where, where production of both kinds um, are increased? Is there still a way to reduce fossil fuel use, use as we ramp up clean production? Well, only by reducing demand. Conventional right. oil peaked in this country in 1970. Conventional is crude plus condensate. It doesn't include Deepwater Horizon and fracking and so on, which is what we went to in the in the recent decades. It was clear in 1972 that the United States was no longer the world's swing supplier. And shortly thereafter, OPEC was formed to ensure that political power remained with the most important material ever discovered, oil. Oil is used to extract everything else we need and want. In an age where we all seem to want everything, oil has become the pathway to everything. Most importantly, fossil fuels are dirty and lithium and rare earths are filthy. However, as we've discussed previously on this show, switching off our use of fossil fuels, especially coal, means we lose aerosol masking. And that'll heat up the planet in a hurry and not in a let's have fun at the beach kind of way either. So I think we're at this point where it's time to act like the grown-ups we claim to be. It's time to recognize that in this age of endless desires, we actually cannot have it all. And and that's a bummer. And no president wants to say that. Jimmy Carter was the last president who tried to point out that we're, we're going to have to make personal sacrifices. That didn't go well at all. Last week, uh, we saw absolutely insane temperatures at uh, the North Pole, the South Pole, the Arctic and the Antarctic. Uh, with with temperatures recorded in the Antarctic that were about 100 degrees Fahrenheit higher than they normally would be at this time of the year. We're seeing cracks in ice shelves that have never appeared before. We're seeing um, calving taking place in the north. Why, why is this happening to such an extreme? Why are the, these two, the, the most remote places on Earth, experiencing these wild uh, temperature changes. And I'll add one thing. I went to Antarctica in 2002, very fortunate, went by boat. And it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. And honestly, I've never been so cold as I was then. Never in my life have I ever been so cold. I can't imagine going to Antarctica today and the temperature being in, you know, the 80s. It's just insane. Why is this happening? Well, the, we, we've known for a long time that the poles would warm faster than the rest of the planet. And really? Why is that? Uh, I'm sorry? 
but I don't have a good answer. I'm not a climate scientist. And so I extract information from other climate scientists, and that leaves me ignorant on some counts. And this is one. That's okay. Sorry. Fascinating uh, uh, point, though. However, I'm going to quote briefly from an essay I wrote a long time ago to indicate how unsurprised we should be about what's going on at the polls. The following information is extracted from the climate some climate change summary at GuyMcPherson.com. It was last updated August 2nd, 2016, more than five and a half years ago. Summer ice melt in Antarctica it is, is at its highest level in a thousand years. Summer ice in the Antarctic is melting 10 times quicker than it was 600 years ago, with the most rapid melt occurring in the last 50 years. This according to a paper in Nature Geoscience from April of 2013, nine years ago. Citing forthcoming papers in science and geophysical research letters, the May 12, 2014 issue of the New York Times reported, quote, a large section of the mighty West Antarctica life ice sheet has begun falling apart, and its continued melting out appears to be unstoppable. The new finding appears to be the fulfillment of a prediction made in 1978 by an eminent glaciologist, John H. Mercer, of the Ohio State University. He outlined the vulnerable nature of the West Antarctic ice sheet and warned that the rapid human-driven release of greenhouse gases posed a threat of disaster. This long essay includes dozens of additional surprises, so-called surprises, in response to abrupt irreversible climate change. I won't bother you with additional examples, but this essay indicates that either we don't pay attention or we are capable of being surprised <laughs> by the same information no, no matter how frequently it yeah. is reported. And so, I, you know, I've been reporting about these so-called surprises for a long time, and they just keep coming. We have a listener who is asking what you think about China's environmental and economic policies. Is there anything that the Chinese are doing that we should emulate, or are the Chinese as big of a problem as we are? China seems to be chasing us, and, you know, they, they're building more coal plants at an unbelievably rapid pace. They're building city, cities that don't even have people yep. in them, planning for the future that is never going to come. We made a lot of mistakes in this country, and I see China pursuing many of the same mistakes and doubling down and also making even further mistakes from an environmental perspective. Unfortunately, for a long time, we have had this system that allows us to separate environmental impact from personal wealth, from the generation of money. And of course, those two really aren't separated. We've just managed to maintain the illusion for a long enough period of time that people continue to be surprised when things start falling apart on either front. Well, things are falling apart on both fronts now, unfortunately. Go ahead, Michelle. No, I was going to say this is sort of the development conundrum, right? Uh, you know, you you are maybe the country that's developed uh, most rapidly in a particular direction. And now, you know, we're in the position of telling other countries that they shouldn't follow this path toward uh, prosperity, but also blocking and, you know, in the form of unfair trade practices and other exploitation and upholding a particular system of rules that, that blocks any other way toward prosperity. And so, you know, you have this sort of fretting in, in development communities about, you know, is it our place to other country to tell other countries not to do what we've done? Isn't that sort of paternalistic? Isn't that sort of uh, uh, neo-colonial? 
um, which it might be. But it's also, you know, we could also maybe just get out of the way from some of these other uh, these other countries trying to trying to achieve prosperity and, you know, through different methods, right? Not through capitalism. I think uh, this is one of the this is one of the dilemmas that's posed here. And we definitely don't have time to ask you for a response to that with 20 seconds left, Guy. I'm very sorry about that. Uh, is there anywhere you want to tell our listeners to go to find more of the, the work that you produce? Well, just a quick paragraph of wrap up before I get there. It's time to act like the grownups we claim to be. In this age of endless desires, we actually cannot have it all. It wasn't long ago that we mortal humans were content with potable water, healthy food, the structures and clothing needed to maintain body temperature in a healthy range, and a decent human community. A few people are still content with these few items. Most people in the society are not. Instead, to quote American radio personality Dave Ramsey, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. If you want more stuff like that, go to GuyMcPherson.com. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. GuyMcPherson.com. That was Guy McPherson, scientist, professor emeritus of natural resources and ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona. Stay tuned. We'll be back for another hour. You're listening to Political Misfits. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, getting into a conversation we've been wanting to have for some time now uh, about gun violence in the United States, uh, about what's really happening, about the way it's reported and what ends that serves uh, and how we should understand it. And uh, we wanted to have this conversation from a couple of perspectives talking about gun violence as a public health issue and also uh, talking to people who are directly involved in trying to prevent violence, you know, in the day to day block to block level. And so to bring both of those perspectives, we're joined by Dr. Yolanda Hancock. She's a pediatrician and obesity medicine specialist. And we're also joined by Chris Thomas, who's a community mentor and a violence interrupter. Uh, So, Dr. Hancock, uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Thank you all. Uh, I want to talk about, uh, well, I want to give some statistics here on, on where we stand. There has been a lot of uh, what I think is sometimes very breathless and out of context reporting on crime uh, and the impact of crime over the past six months or a year. You know, we have stories about chain stores closing because of shoplifting when they had actually announced their closure plans months or years before. There's been a lot of focus on some wave of petty theft Uh, that I don't know is actually real. But it is also true that we have had some record years when it comes to gun violence. Uh, According to the CDC, more Americans died of gun-related injuries in 2020 than in any other year on record. That is more than 45,000 people. More than half of those, uh, 54%, were suicides. Uh, There was a record number of gun murders and a near record of gun suicides in 2020. We have uh, a record number of murders involving a gun at 79 percent. More than half of all suicides in the country involve a gun. Uh, And for 2021, we still only have incomplete data, but it does seem like there was an increase in murders and two thirds of major U.S. cities saw an uptick in murders. Um, Pew Research, which is uh, where I got these statistics from 2020, also notes that despite this increase in raw numbers of deaths, 
the rate of gun deaths is not at a record pace. Uh, it is the highest that it's been since the mid 90s at 13.6 gun deaths per 100,000 people. Uh, but it's below the peak, which was back in 1974. Right. So it is the highest that it's been in in more than 20 years, which I think is pretty significant. Uh, that is all the stati statistics I will throw at you for now. Uh, but I want to get into what it means. And I want to start with you, Chris. Uh, I want to ask what the last year or two has felt like to you in terms of gun violence. Like, do, do these numbers match what you are encountering? Or do you feel like there's some kind of disconnect in in what you see and what's being reported? Um, I, I uh, definitely agree. I concur. Um Every statistic they're showing is, is exactly that, and it's um it's probably even more. It's probably even worse actually when you see it. I'm up close. Um, just having small talk with a few people um through uh, Instagram these last few weeks. Um, people I know personally, they didn't pass, but they were even shot, and it was um all from strangers. It was um, from mild arguments basically. Um, luckily they um they were flesh wounds and everything. Um, but I yeah again um being out here in the Maryland D.C. Virginia area um you definitely see it firsthand. You see it up close basically. Um, it's it's, it's alarming. Um, it's very disheartening. Um, and I'm gonna keep trying my best, you know, to uh definitely assist in um in the, the decrease um of some of this violence. But um I definitely um agree with um those statistics and um unfortunately I do see a increase um still occurring um in twenty twenty two. I think COVID was a really, 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 really big changing point for us with masks, with staying at home, with uh, mental health, with so many different factors where we put them all into play, I think that is still active right now and is still present with us. And a lot of people have not came from that yet. And that's playing a big factor to what we're still seeing from 2020, 2021. We're just rolling in 2022 and every year is, is unfortunately just breaking the record in um, our major urban cities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Hancock, also, you know, from from what you're seeing from a sort of a medical perspective, a public health perspective, do these statistics look like what you're seeing? Absolutely. I think it's important for listeners to understand that not only do I practice medicine, I also work in the space of public health, both in teaching and in having a master's from Hopkins. When we look at gun violence, we have to really understand that not only with the statistics that you've outlined, but it's important to understand that it's a major public health problem and a leading cause of what we call premature death. That's what's most important to recognize is that we're losing people at a significantly um, earlier age due to gun violence. But in order to truly appreciate the significance of these numbers, we have to look at how the United States compares to other countries, particularly other developed countries. All firearm deaths in nearly two dozen high-income countries, including countries like Australia, France, Italy, Spain, 82% of firearm deaths occur in the United States. And 91% of children between the ages of 0 to 14 who are killed by firearms occur in this country. So we see that gun violence affects people of all ages and all races. But when we talk about disparities in the same way, we talk about things like diabetes and, and COVID-19 infection. See the same things play out among people of color. We know that among U.S. residents between the ages of 15 to 24, homicide is the fourth leading cause of death for non-Hispanic whites. It's the second leading cause of death for Latinos, and it is the leading cause of death for black youth between the ages of 15 to 24. So when we talk about gun violence, we also have to talk about the disparities that I observe, not only as a physician and a public health expert, but also as a, as a black person in this country. 
Yeah. And I want to talk about the connections between guns and violence, because I have definitely heard people who live in uh, violent communities defend their desire to have a gun. And I want to ask you, Chris, you know, what what you see as the connection between the availability and proliferation of guns and violence, because obviously having a tool makes it easier to do a job. Uh, and I wonder if you think the connection is as straightforward as if there is more if there are more guns, there will be more violence. And another question, you know, especially when you are maybe talking about communities, that don't have a lot of trust in other institutions to protect them or help solve problems. Should step one be coming for guns or should step one be uh, trust building activities? Right. So that. It, pulling back on guns and acting more restrictions is something that people are more willing to follow through on. To me, step one is um, definitely um, getting guns off the street and getting them out of the hands of violent offenders. Um, exactly what you said. Um, again, I, I agree a hundred percent. When we have an influx of guns and, and you have that tool, one of the street names they use for it at the end of the day, it, it's, it's accessible to you tell people all the time, you only think about using something because it's accessible. It's not accessible, you're going to do something else. But reality is knives and bow and arrows, and we can go down a list of everything. But the number one thing to me is definitely, and one big thing, obviously, is what we've heard and um, a new statistic came out in the last two weeks of ghost guns. And the ghost guns didn't start yesterday. No. I had to educate myself, and ghost guns have been out since 2010. Of one of the school shootings, they used a ghost gun back in 2012. Two of them um, last year, they used ghost guns, actually, or whatever. They just have a lot more additions now and modifications of guns. Um, another uh, thing that the, the news knows about a lot now, um, it, it, it didn't start in Chicago, but Chicago got them before D.C. and New York and a lot of other areas is a switch. A switch is nothing but a, another modification they add onto the end of the firearm, which makes it a fully automatic firearm, you know. Two kids who just, um, teenagers who just passed, that was a drum on the end of a, of a gun. That's 50, another 50 rounds. So we're used to shooting. When they first came out with 2A, it, it was one bullet at a time. Now the, these kids have more firepower than the police officers do. Why the police officers had to step up even their firearms. But um, number one is definitely getting them out of the hands and really trying to teach these young kids, and I think education is very important, where they, um, we, we do have a guy in our community that actually um, teaches them firearm safety. So in case you ever do come in contact with one, whether you're giving it to authorities or just to know how to use it properly, because there's so many um, um, cases like yesterday where these young youth are passing away and they're taking out somebody else because of improper use of it, because they, they're just so emphasized about it. And they're like, oh, what does it do? What does it do? Everybody wants to have one. And they feel it's a power and it's authority. But it, it just I feel that you don't need to have that until you're over the age of 21. Um, and I think that that is a really big issue right now, especially in the urban communities. They're in high schools. They're in middle schools. Um, they, 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 I believe they should have a lot more metal detectors. They should have a lot more research officers, not to scare the kids, but to be there and whether it be a mentor or just a safety mechanism, but to let them know, hey, I'm here for you. I don't want to scare the kids and, and, and say, well, why are these police here? But I just think it should be more of a calming and a soothing type of situation and environment that all these kids want to live in. That is really interesting. I have not ever, I think, heard about it. It's, it almost sounds like a sort of harm reduction 
uh, approach to guns, where in addition to trying to stem the flow and trying to get them back, you also just treat the gun as a dangerous substance that does exist or dangerous item that exists in a community and teach people how to handle it safely. Uh, that I, That's news to me. I hadn't heard about that, Chris. So you think that is uh, a worthwhile aspect, uh, you know, do that simultaneously with trying to get guns out of communities? Yes. Well, um, 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 the, the good, the good brother, he's actually a, a pro, a pro gun person. I'm more of anti-gun, mm-hmm. but, um, he's a uh, very known in the area, Mark Chopper. And what he does, basically he does, he has a lot of youth and, um, younger adults, and he tries to teach them pretty much how to clean it, how to use it properly, how to defend yourself. The real reason you're supposed to own a firearm and defend your mother or defend yourself, not to go out here, obviously be on the offensive appro- um, approach and so whether a carjacking, which we've seen the, the biggest rise of carjackings ever in the history of it in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area, basically, um, you know, but he tries to educate them and say, hey, if you do want one, one, you know, this is how we treat it properly. This is how you manage yourself when you have a firearm on you, if you want to get a concealed license or something similar to it. Um, I'm I'm a little bit for that. I don't. I just don't think that they kids should should learn about it at a young age, basically, and stuff. And it's really just so much of um of them just fantasizing about it. And mm-hmm. it's, I mentor to a lot of young youth. A lot of kids really fantasize about it. My daughter's only twelve, and she knows I used to do security, so I used to carry a gun many years ago and stuff. And she she used to ask me so many questions. And I say, well, baby. I'm not, you know, carrying this, you know, to harm anybody. That's just what the job is calling for, basically. I said, but Daddy, you know, thinks that we should always have to be able to talk our way out of things. And again, back to what I first said, when guns are readily accessible, like you said, when they're available, that's one of the biggest issues we have right there. I want to ask you, Dr. Hancock, about what what you think of some of these. The Biden administration actually just, I believe it was yesterday, released uh, a fact sheet about their gun violence reduction plan. And I was curious what you think of some of the proposals. And one of them that I thought was interesting is uh, that some states, apparently encouraged by the Department of Health and Human Services, are allowing Medicaid to reimburse providers for hospital based gun violence prevention services. And I was very curious about what that is. What are these hospital based gun violence prevention services and, and what you think of their effectiveness? Sure. You know, in terms of their approach, I I certainly support investing in evidence-based community violence interventions and expanding summer program and programming, employment opportunities, all of the things that we know serve as protective factors against gun violence. What I found to be sort of more of the same is further investing in local law enforcement when we know that simply by adding in more police does not directly uh, impact the prevention of gun violence. What it does is just facilitates uh, sometimes intimidation, sometimes um, the loss of black lives, and certainly increasing in terms of arrest. What we have to really think about is what's called primary prevention in public health. That's where you prevent things from even starting, right? So if I am only working on the end of it where police are there to arrest and facilitate um, people feeling intimidated by their presence, that does not necessarily change either the behavior or the risk of gun violence. When it comes to these hospital-based gun violence programs, it really is a multidisciplinary program where it combines efforts of both the medical staff within the hospital and trusted community partners, uh, such as Chris. You know, we would involve Chris in this initiative to provide safety planning services, trauma-informed care for individuals who have experienced uh, gun violence. We know that 
particularly youth have, who have experienced gun violence, not only are have a higher likelihood of being victims of gun violence again, but there's also an elevated risk for violence perpetuation by that person who sustained gun violence. And so what this does is it really works on what we call the social determinants the factors that influence whether or not someone will either be a victim of or a perpetrator of gun violence. And it's really looking at substance use. It's looking at chronic unemployment. It's looking at poverty, education, looking at even mental health aspects, which is something that I was surprised was not included in President Biden's package of services. But it's really it's the overarching goal is to promote protective factors um, that include social support, job readiness, educational attainment that defer folks away from even having an interest in the use of a gun. Where that isn't part of what they see as a solution to any of their issues. Yeah. And I think I'm going to ask you to repeat yourself a little bit here. But yeah, I can think of economic factors that lead to violence. I can think of social factors that lead to violence. But I wondered if you could tell us a little more explicitly, like, yeah, what what is the role of public health in in prevention? Right. And as you say, not just responding after the fact when someone has been a victim or been a perpetrator. I hear you say uh, mental health. I hear you say looking for other determinants. Can you talk to us a little bit more about uh, public health and gun violence? Absolutely. When you think about a public health approach to preventing gun violence, it's first important to understand that violence is just as contagious as COVID and has become an epidemic within our society, even though we have not necessarily identified it as that. The role of public health is to really uh, provide a comprehensive approach that keeps families and communities safe. What does that look like? It looks like conducting surveillance to be able to track gun-related deaths and injuries so that we have more data to determine what this looks like right now, particularly when it comes to youth and gun violence. There have been local policies that have been passed and even federal policies that have been passed historically that block our ability to collect data in order to gain insights in terms of the true causes of gun violence and what the true impact of interventions are like community-based programming. We cannot ask for funding of community-based programs if we don't have the data to support that they actually work. So helps public health's role is to identify the factors associated with gun violence. What we just talked about, what are the risk factors? Is poverty most linked to gun violence? Is mental health are mental health issues like depression? Is it adverse childhood experiences? What does resiliency look like? What are some of the protective factors? If you grow up in a neighborhood that has strong gun violence, but you were able to successfully navigate through it without either being a subject of gun violence or perpetuator of it, what were those factors that facilitated your success in your neighborhood? Who are the trusted um, adults in a community who are the youth advocates and how do we allow funding and support for them to be able to create programs. You see a lot of academic institutions going into neighborhoods that are plagued by gun violence, but very rarely do we actually fund community-led organizations, and that needs to change. Another way that public health shows up so that we can reduce risk factors and help in partnership with people who are already feet on the ground doing the work to build up resiliency. And lastly, it's institutionalizing, meaning creating formal structures to provide successful um, benchmark prevention strategies. So if you're struggling in New Orleans to um, handle gun violence, well, guess what? The program in Baltimore was able to reduce gun violence by 50 percent 
because public health stepped in to quantify what this program looks like and to show that it actually does work. In the same way we practice evidence-based medicine, we also practice evidence-based public health intervention. It is pretty remarkable to see, you know, to know that more than half of gun deaths are suicides and yet see, as you point out, nothing about mental health here in this in this five pronged plan to address it. But uh, more money for more beat cops. And I want to ask you, Chris, if you think that that is an effective response to increasing levels of gun violence, uh, having more officers on the street in communities where there is violence. Um, unfortunately, I don't even agree 10% with that. Um, one big problem with that is, and I, and I will, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, a lot of the uh, unfortunate black men in a lot of these neighborhoods I go to, because they didn't have a father figure, they have an issue with authoritativeness. So once they see a police officer, it's automatically hatred in their eyes and in their mind. It shouldn't be like that. And then and they have lost a lot of the integrity of a lot of the general public over the last 15 years, basically, especially with, you know, so many videos surfacing now. And I think that if police, if they did give the money to police, like they tried to do two years ago in D.C., these cops need to be more active in these communities. One thing that I'm going to start doing more this year, they've been doing a little bit around here, not very often. We go take a few boys and we take them to go play basketball. We don't let them know that they're playing basketball with police. Hmm. Next day, they'll find out when they see him in uniform. And unfortunately, one time, they were like, oh, we can't play basketball with y'all no more. <laughs> I mean, I'm not that surprised. <laughs> and, and that's what happened. And yep. police were like, wait, you dap me up. We ate pizza together. You know, we, we were doing flips together. What's the problem? He said, man, that's your job, man. I don't, I don't roll with y'all. And so... We, we when, I, when I noticed that, I'm like, wow. You know, I'm like, you know, unfortunately, we hear it all the time. Every teacher, every preacher, it's, it always takes one bad apple. But when they just say give this influx of money and increase their salaries and put them on the street, you know, you got to be respected on the street. Back to what um, um, Dr. Hancock said. I mean, I, I, I sincerely, I mean, it, it, it almost had me emotional when you said to put money into violence interruption. I've been involved in this in a few years, and just one of the neighborhoods I went to last year, it almost didn't end as well as it was the well as it was supposed to at first. Then we did get through to a few of the young men, and that's what we want to do. Somebody is a leader in these communities, like they call them OG, and they got different words and stuff. And pretty much, we want to say, hey, what do you all need? What do you all want? do a lot of mentoring with um, Catholic Charities through the recently incarcerated brothers and a fatherhood organization, 100 Fathers Incorporated. So I'm like, do you need your record clean so you can get a job? Is it is it visitation with your kids? Is it, you know, I know it's mental health. I'm really, really sad and so disheartened that they didn't put mental health at the forefront, like you said, anxiety, depression. You know, um, male suicide is, is almost one-third more than women is. Women are. They actually think about other ways, and they keep on saying, hey, I can get through it. Men, we say, you know what? <laughs> I don't know what I'm even here for anymore. You know, so it, 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 mental health, education, and poverty are my three biggest things. I feel if you get educated properly as a youth and an adolescent, you will not make some of the choices that you would make if you had proper education. You were worried about college. You were worried about entrepreneurship. You were worried about, you know, trying to take care of your family. But when you're not properly educated, you're, you're going to do whatever. Once you're 17, 18, 19, you get out of high school, what is there for you to do? 
cannot, if you cannot, um, like I've helped gentlemen, some of them not even capable to read, 18 years old, and they're on a second grade reading level. So how do you expect them to get a job? People just want to push a job on them. Some of them really do want to become a construction worker, a plumber, an electrician. But I feel that, like um, Dr. Hancock said, we need to get the money into a lot of these violence interruption programs, and we really need to get these people back to work, get these people out. I've been a lot of some, some of these communities. I don't go to every one, but when you're welcome, you go in the daytime and you say, hey, what do you need? Is it food? Okay, we're going to bring you that. Do your kids need something? Clothes? You know, and slowly they'll start to tell you more of what they need. And then we start to bring that back to the government or, or the schools or the churches or the nonprofits and say, this is what this community needs. Let's give them what they need so they don't go pick up a gun and go take what we're not giving them. I want to ask. I want to ask you, Chris, and I want to ask Dr. Hancock. What do you? What happened? Right? Did it feels like there was an opportunity that was missed after 2020? We had a years-long protest movement about police brutality, you know, and particularly about justice for racial justice, justice for uh, black victims of police brutality. And and what do we have as a response to an uptick in gun violence, but more police? And I wonder. Uh, if if you think there was an opportunity to change our approach to to social violence after 2020 and if uh, what happened, how did we end up back in exactly the same spot? It feels like you want me to jump in first. Sure. Go for it. Yeah, yeah please go ahead. What I think is important to note what what has happened since 2020 law enforcement in the United States has killed 200. They killed 200 and almost 250 people as of March 20, um, March 24th, averaging about three deaths a day, which is on track with trends observed prior to 2020. And so based on the numbers alone, it seems as though we have not learned anything. One thing that we can do is pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act so that some of these practices that are in place right now that continue to be in play are no longer there. Chokehold, carotid hold, improving police training, ending the qualified immunity provision in, in policing so that when a police officer unjustly takes a lie that there are some significant consequences to it. None of the laws change. If none of the way that policing is, it, it takes place has changed, then we have learned absolutely nothing. And adding more police to the street isn't necessarily going to change anything except increase the arrest of black and brown men and women and put our lives at jeopardy. Uh, what do you think, Chris? Um, I, I concur exactly what she said. Um, we have to really look at what did happen since then? Exactly what you said. What has actually changed? Has, has, has some of these people that were unfortunately victims of this brutality or the family members, have these laws haven't 100% been passed? And, like, again, we're on record to keep on making the increase of these police deaths. So as fast as we're trying our best to put things behind us and say, no, they're better than this, no, that's not happening anymore, every week, you see another incident, whether it's New York, whether it's California, whether it's Texas or Florida. And, and, and when that happens, all it does is keep refreshing your mind. So yeah. when you go outside, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I, even though I thought Mr. Jones was good, you know, something just happened with the, the city, the, the police department right next door. People that will not drive in certain cities because they know how the law enforcement are. And that is 100%. Uh, uh, issue that we have in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, even with me being a black male. I have a, a secret clearance with the government, haven't been arrested, homeowner, business owner. Still, when they profile me, that, sir, get out. Sir, I don't care. 
officer, and I, I say, look, officer, can I record you also for my safety? You know, and then they're like, well, no, we'll, we'll, we'll be done with this soon. And I'm just like, why do y'all have to be so aggressive with everybody? Every, every, every person is not the same. So, but um, I definitely think with us going forward in 2022, I think we need to be a lot more proactive and stop being reactive. We like to always change laws after something happens. After something happens at a school, we say, hey, let's put up metal detectors. After something happens at a park, we want to say, oh, let's do this. Why don't we do things prior to? You know, it's about to be the summertime. Kids are out of school. It's not enough community centers that were ever open since COVID started. And these kids are going to need somewhere to go. And they stay outside early mornings, late at night. And when it's rivalries in a lot of these situations in cities, this is how these young kids keep getting shot. I think. Go ahead. I was going to say also with the metal detectors, it's like, you you, you know, they can be a good tool for uh, stopping guns from going into schools. But it's not. I, I think there's such a desire for an easy technological solution. But you still need something. You need to do something for and with the child who's trying to bring that. You know what I mean? You can create a barrier. But you have to do something with the kid who's trying to bring the gun into the school, right? There has to be a place for him or her to go. There has to be an avenue for, you know, just expelling them uh, isn't a solution. And that's where you need, I think, the the more expensive, more long term, uh, better staffed intervention programs that I think both of you are um, are are recommending and advocating for. I, I want to ask both of you uh, before we run out of time about a couple of uh, short term solutions, in particular about the use of curfews. Uh, Miami Beach just had spring break. There's always, you know, there's always, it seems lately, uh, a spate of shootings. The city leadership gets very upset and they impose They've imposed a curfew as they did last year. Uh, Do curfew, are are they a useful short term solution? Are they I don't think they're useful long term solution. But, you know, I'll let let you answer. Do do curfews help? Uh, Chris, I'll ask you and then I'll go to Dr. Hancock. (laughs) Unfortunately, I, I don't think they help at all whatsoever. I don't, I, I just really don't. From 2020, no, from when we had, um, um, I'm trying to get his name in Baltimore, but it's Freddie Gray. Mm-hmm. They put, and they, and they put everybody on lockdown. It was a lot of jokes to surface in Baltimore. And they said, we're from Baltimore. We don't care about no curfew. Turned into a joke. But it's hard to tell somebody that's over the age of 18, go in the house, don't come out and, you better do as I say. That's still authoritative. And so they want to do the exact opposite and they want to revolt. But like you said, I think we just need something more short term, but let's try to start talking to them like they're, like they're on the same level. Let's bring all of us in the same room and get our differences out. Only time they get their differences out is when a police officer rolls up on them and then it's nothing but cursing respect and animosity and aggression. And that's why we're going to keep having the same issues every single time because we, we don't know how to talk to each other and we don't ever see each other when they're outside of uniform. We just keep having the issues like now. Dr. Hancock, I want to ask you as well uh, what you think of a curfew as a short-term solution. And if it's not a good one, like what, what would be a good short-term solution while you build up a long-term solution? Sure. The short answer is no. The Campbell Collaboration, a nonprofit, did a systematic review back in 2016, and evidence showed that juvenile curfews are ineffective at reducing crime and victimization. If anything, the evidence showed that there was a slight increase in crime because uh, young folks know that there's a limited amount of time in which they can wild out. Mm-hmm. 
that's what they're going to do. And it was close to zero in terms of looking at a full 24-hour uh, period of time. When it comes to juveniles being victims of gun-related crimes, it also showed that there was no effect by imposing a curfew. What we have to do is really think about it from a public health standpoint. I always use the analogy that I learned at Hopkins. I'm standing at the bottom of a river seeing people flailing and I continue to rescue them from the river, but I never go upstream and find out why they're jumping from the bridge in the first place while they're bringing guns to school in the first place. And I will never solve the problem. What we have to do is focus our attention on upstream solutions, upstream issues that children, youth, and even adults, because we talk a lot about youth, but grown so-and-so men are out here shooting each other as are women. We have to pay attention to what are those social determinants and really focus on mental health, conflict resolution, and looking at social-emotional learning so that from early childhood education all the way through to the workforce and in communities, we can address the root causes of gun violence. Uh, That was Dr. Yolanda Hancock. She was also joined by Chris Thomas, who is a community mentor and violence interrupter. Really appreciate both of you joining us today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, now getting into uh, the thorny story of the fight between Seneca Nation and the state of New York over gambling revenues and the tactics the state of New York has resorted to. Uh, You've shocked me with some of the details of this. It's wild, including... Where this money is supposed to go in the end, which is like just uh, the cherry on top here. Joining us to break all this down is John Kane. He's a Mohawk activist and educator. He's producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast, and he's co-host of Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica Radio in New York. John, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me again. So I'm going to do the usual thing and, and try to outline this complicated situation and then ask you to sort of fill in the blanks and, and uh, let me know if I've gotten anything wrong. But basically, New York State and Seneca Nation, these two governments are in an argument over whether Seneca Nation owes the state, uh, I believe it is $564 million worth of casino revenue dating from 2017, although this is a longer standing conflict, I think, over the legality of a gaming contract that dates back a decade or so earlier. Over the weekend, New York apparently froze Seneca Nation's bank accounts. I understand because Seneca hadn't paid quickly enough. Uh, On Monday, President of Seneca Nation released a statement saying to New York, hey, you, you know we have the money to make these payments, but we are doing what we are legally allowed to do, which is continue to fight the decision, a uh, court decision that sided with you. Uh, but as he says, you know, hasn't been determined to be completely legal. So as far as we're concerned, this, this battle is, uh, is ongoing. But New York uh, is using its position as a, a part of the, the U.S. state government to strong arm Seneca Nation Uh, Because Seneca Nation is stuck using American banking systems. And so Seneca Nation, you know, because it uses those accounts to make payments to its elderly and vulnerable, 
uh, who were taken by the state of New York as financial hostages, uh, I believe to, as of today, has gone ahead and made made that payment. So is this is this roughly what the fight is at this moment? Well, roughly. But if yeah. you don't mind, let me let me Please. do a little clarification. The the money in dispute is supposed to be what they what they label as revenue sharing. But it's not revenue sharing. What it is, it's an imposition. It is it is a forced payment that the New York State is making on the Sanicas. Look, the Sanicas, when they opened up their casinos in 2002, they entered into a revenue sharing agreement with the state of New York, where the state was supposed to provide a level of exclusivity that was supposed to bolster their market, give them a non-compete status in all of Western New York. The trouble is they didn't really give them that. I mean, what they really agreed to do was to not put class three slot machines in Western New York. Well, sorry, but New York couldn't put class three slot machines. It was against their state constitution. So they didn't really surrender or concede something to the, to the Seneca nation for what would be revenue sharing. And that revenue sharing increased over time. It went from what was essentially 18% of the net slot drop to 25% of the net slot drop. And I got to say that that 25% of the net slot drop and I know that's not a common um, accounting term. It is the money that goes into a slot machine minus the payout. That After that, 25% went to the state. And out of the 75% that the Senecas kept, they had to pay all the bills. They had to pay for the casino. They had to pay for the slot machine. They had to pay for all the staffing, everything. So it's when you bring big. it down all down – yeah, so when you bring it down to net revenue – the state was essentially making the same amount of money off of Seneca gaming as the Senecas were Wow! for no investment, nothing whatsoever. Everybody keeps playing around with this 25%, but they're not defining what it is. So this goes on for 14 years. And, and again, over that 14 years, the state does indeed compete against the Senecas. They, they keep continuing expanding their lottery system. They actually turned three horse racing tracks that were failing miserably because that industry is in so much trouble all by itself into casinos. They, they filled them up with slot machines and they competed directly against the Senecas in the so-called exclusivity zone. Now, their argument was, yeah, but these aren't real slot machines. These are class two slot machines. But the reality is they looked and played identical to a, to a slot machine. They just technically, mm -hmm. they, they just hedged on one side of the classification to be considered class two, but they were certainly competing against the class three slot machines. Then they go on to ultimately pass a, a constitutional amendment that allowed the state to get into class three gaming. And of course, now sports betting is all the rage. And the Senate and, and the and New York State not only approves sports betting in brick or more brick and mortar casinos, but now you can do it on computer or even on an app on your phone. So the fact yeah. the fact is that the, that the state continued to expand its gaming market and diminish the value of the so-called exclusivity over that period of time. Now, and that doesn't even get to where we're really at because right. at the end of 14 years, the the compact, the state Seneca compact renewed. It renewed automatically because neither one objected to the language of the renewal. In the language of that renewal was no mention of revenue sharing payments. So the Seneca stopped paying. They The state forced the Senecas into binding arbitration because that's what's written into the compact. And two of the, the judges, two white guys, I might add, <laughs> ruled that there was ambiguity in the language. 
And the reality is there was no ambiguity. There was no language. There was nothing in the renewal period that talked about the percentage or the years that these uh, this payment had to be made. They claimed that the ambiguity was held over from the, the 14 years that revenue sharing did exist. And of course, there is no language in the renewal period. So, but, and here's the thing about ambiguity, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's this thing, uh, there's what they call the canons of statutory construction uh, uh, associated with legal framework. And as it relates to treaties, legislation, or contracts with Native people, the canons of statutory construction insist that any ambiguity relating to interaction with Native people must be ruled in favor of Natives. And part of that is because they knew that we were being screwed in 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 this double speak of, of treaties and everything else. So, so these two white judges create this ambiguity and then then let the ambiguity favor the state. So they ruled that yo you have to keep paying. Well, the the third arbitration judge said, well these guys just rewrote the compact. So the Seneca's position on this thing was to say. Well, since the compact has now been altered and it's no longer really an agreement, it's an imposition, we think the Interior Department has to approve because the Interior Department didn't approve the, the renewal, renewal period. They may have approved the 14 years prior, but the renewal period, the Interior Department hadn't reviewed. And now if the Interior Department had to look at this revenue sharing that was no longer an agreement but an imposition, the Seneca's position is that there's no way the Interior Department would approve it. The right. other thing is because – the exclusivity had diminished so much in value, if it had any in the, in the first place, that the Senecas were overpaying. And by law, if the, the concession by the state is not of substantial benefit to the gaming operation, then it's illegal, especially if they're getting paid an absorbent amount of money. $1.4 billion in that 14-year period. And with the money that has been seized now, it's, it's over $2 billion. And again, as per the seizure, let me let me kind of state what happened here. Here, the Senecas had been placing this money. They've, they've still been accruing what the state claimed was due to them, and they were putting it in a dedicated account. It was a restricted account. The state knew what it was. They knew where it was. They knew how much it was. They knew that it was growing. And rather than just seizing that account, which they probably could have done, especially if they had used the, the federal court systems, they used the state law to tie up the entire gaming operation financial system. Now that financial system, I got to remind people that the full, the, uh, the entire system of public finance for the Seneca nation comes from the gaming operation. So you shut down all of the revenue coming to the Seneca nation, including things, you know, like I said, medical health, you know, elder services, all that stuff. But you also tied up all, almost 4,000 employees who uh, whose paychecks were, were now, some of them actually bounced. And most of those employees are non-native. It also shut down any of the vendors and contractors and all of the, the services that were provided. They essentially crashed the entire Seneca economy over this one account that was sitting right there. I mean, that's what they did. It is an outrageous story. I mean, it's like to, to sort of put it in a nutshell, right? The state enters into an agreement with Seneca Nation to give them something in exchange for some money. Then they don't give it. But they keep increasing the amount that Seneca Nation is supposed to share for it. And then when Seneca Nation says, hey, actually, this isn't this isn't legally appropriate. We don't have to do it. Then you just take the bank accounts hostage because you can when Seneca Nation doesn't pay what is basically a shakedown. 
Well, and, you know, and of course, the state said, well, they exhausted all their legal options. Well, that's not true. Yeah. And if the state was so sure, why didn't they say, yes, Interior Department, please come in and review this so we can be done with it? If they were so sure of themselves, why didn't they welcome uh, the Interior Department to come in and, and review this thing? Mm -hmm. But they didn't. Instead, they they essentially extorted half a billion dollars on top of the billion and a half that they had already gotten out of them. I mean, it is really an outrageous thing that, frankly— Everybody should be outraged over. But you know what? I got to attribute this to, to and, and I know people don't like hearing this, but this is just racism, plain and simple. This isn't just a company. This is a, a distinct group of people, the Senecas, that had this done to them. And it was done to them because they are the Senecas. Mm -hmm. So this is overt racism practiced by the, you know, this, this lady governor mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't know. She's trying to prove that she's tough. Like Andrew Cuomo, even Andrew Cuomo never tried to do this kind of crap. <laughs> and also, I mean, it just goes to show, I mean, that sort of underpinning this is one, why this casino revenue is so expensive because the uh, native nations don't, can't raise taxes. So they don't have a way to sort of fund, fund their own uh, processes and and responsibilities as a nation, and also this is of, their sole means of public finance. Absolutely, you're sole absolutely means of correct. public financing, and then you still have to use the. Well, I mean, have to, right? I'm sure that you could come up with maybe some kind of workaround, but you're you know within the United States, right? So you're still using uh U U.S. banking systems, right? Co colonial government banking systems, right? Which means that anytime you are in a negotiation, I guess this is a tactic that a a, an agency of the U.S. colonial government could employ because of this, again, this weird te unresolved tension of uh, what, you know, what is nationhood and what should these nations be, be able not be able to do? Well, and the bottom line is the Seneca said, look, let us exhaust this this final hurdle, which is whether the Interior Department will agree that what that these payments are legal. Mm -hmm. And if they do, look, we're not going to be happy about it, but, and, but we'll have to pay it. But you know what? Here's the other thing. This compact, even this extended period, expires at the end of 2023. So the Senecas could have just said, we're just not going to do revenue sharing going forward because there is no requirement. And I think this is what's important. In the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, there, it's actually a prohibition for states to impose a fee on, uh, on native gaming operations. And in fact, revenue sharing is only legal if they provide a concession that meets or exceeds the value of the revenue that they're that they're receiving. Uh -huh. And it does in this case, it doesn't it doesn't even come close. I mean, in the Interior Department's um, National Indian Gaming Commission, they did an investigation, but they didn't do a full investigation. But out of that investigation, they did determine that the Seneca's overpaid, grossly overpaid and that the revenue sharing was uh, or the exclusivity was greatly diminished over that period of time. So if they really reviewed it, there's no way the state would, the state would. And and so th that's the that's the gamble that the Seneca's were like. They were accruing the money. They were putting it aside. It was there. The state wasn't desperate for the money, although it does seem that Kathy Hogel came up with a um, uh, an immediate use of those funds. Uh do you want to talk about that? Do you want to talk about how, what it means to take all this money, take this, uh, you know, extortion, basically, after having taken financial hostage, a, an entire community. And as you mentioned, a bunch of people who just are not even members of the community just happen to be uh, sort of collateral damage here uh, and and decide that that is going to mostly fulfill the public contribution for a new stadium for the bills. Yes. And, you know, and here's the thing. This was uh, a hill that Kathy Hochul had to climb because 
Kathy Ogles from Western New York. So she robs this money from the Senegas and then casts herself as the hometown hero that's going to rob from those rich, greedy Senecas and give it to the poor uh, people of Nottingham uh, right. and their and, and their new Bill Stadium. But the thing is, this is where it gets even uglier. Her husband, who is a former U.S. attorney, is the lead counsel for the Delaware North Corporation, which is a gaming corporation, has millions of dollars of contracts, not only with New York State, but they also have the concession contract with the Bill Stadium. So this is absolutely a, a gross conflict of interest because Bill Hochul, William Hochul, is absolutely served by this, uh, you know, by not only the attack on Seneca gaming because his company is a gaming corporation, but even taking that money and dumping, dumping it into a stadium that he is, that his company is going to benefit from. And you know, the other thing is that Kathy Hochul had to sell this thing downstate. I mean, downstate, there were plenty of people who said you can't spend $600 million on a stadium. And I mean, the guy who owns the football team is, is a billionaire. Uh, the, the Pagola, Terry and Kim Pagula, they're billionaire billionaires made lots of money off of hydro fracking. Let them pay for the stadium if they want their uh, new stadium for their, uh, you know, for their football team. But so this was going to be a hard sell downstate. So she believed by robbing this from the Senecas, she could tamp down that, uh, that, you know, um, complaint from downstate. But here's the thing. If the state's overall budget was already allocating this money coming from the Senecas, it's still taking it from the the overall state budget. Mm -hmm. So I think downstate people are still going to complain about this thing. But, you know, again, I, I got to say this it, with this money, it's over two billion dollars that the state has gotten from Seneca Gaming. Over a billion of it never came back to Western New York. It was a, you know, just a giant sucking sound of money leaving Western New York to go to Albany. The fact that she's pledging, you know, from one pocket to the other, that the money will, will come back into, uh, into funding some of the bill stadium. Look, the, the Senecas, I got to tell you, the Senecas would have much rather invested in the bill stadium directly. So they were a stakeholder than give this money to Kathy Hochul or the mayor of Niagara Falls and the mayor of uh, Buffalo. Right. Right. Which is which sort of uh, is a metaphor for this entire system. Right. It's like as soon as you, you know, you, you allow uh, casinos, you sort of allow gambling on on reservations so that there's a, an opportunity to raise public money. But then as soon as it starts to make money, you have to figure out a way of, of exploiting it. Right. Everybody and, wants and of, uh, you know, twisting people's arms to get it back in. And, yeah, it's always just take the money and put it into something, never establishing actual partnerships where, where well, and, uh, and I got to correct you a little bit on that language, because this isn't about allowing native people to get to do gambling. I mean, the, when they created the Indian gaming regulatory act, they, they, they created that out of thin air. There was a Supreme court ruling the year before where California was trying to shut down a, uh, a super bingo uh, operation in uh, at the Cabazon band of mission Indians. Mm -hmm. And when they won in court, Congress scrambled because states were saying we got to have an in on the on these native gaming venues. Mm -hmm. So they passed this law where none had existed. This law wasn't passed to give us something; it was passed to take it away. Right? It was it was passed to take control, regulatory control, and any number of other uh, functions away from from native gaming operators. And we already had some of these operations going. I mean, certainly we had you know, bingo halls and, and, and other things going on. But when they passed IGRA, the only benefit that native people got out of IGRA 
was no longer could states bully their vendors or their financiers or their 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 consultants uh, who could threaten to take away their gaming licenses in places like Nevada or New Jersey if they were contracting. Now there was a legal framework that our vendors could could hide behind. So this was more for them than it was for us. We already could do gaming. No, that's the, a the very Supreme good, Court acknowledged it. That's a very good point. Yeah. Can I ask? I mean, if Seneca Nation is still if they still have a legal dispute to be resolved, is is there a possibility they'll get this money back? I mean, I guess these these uh, legal processes are still underway. Well, they are still pursuing, and they're actually getting some movement from the Interior Department. The Interior Department just released what they're calling new regulations, but they're not really new regulations. They're really more new policies um, that allow them to more scrutinize more thoroughly the uh, revenue sharing provisions and any change in the gaming compacts, which is exactly what the Senecas were asking for. Ironically, coming out of the Trump administration, the effort to get the Interior Department involved was met with <laughs> with the Interior Department saying, you know, we'd um, we'd rather not review this unless both parties ask us. Well, that's like telling a crime victim, we're not going to investigate your crime unless your accuser agrees to us investigating the crime. Mm -hmm. And that's and so this new policy, because this wasn't written into law, this new policy says now we're going to consider doing reviews, even if only one party is asking. Really? Why were you doing this in the first place? Mm -hmm. So that's already coming to pass. So what does that mean about a half a billion dollars already being paid? Well, I don't know that the Senecas will ever get that back from New York State, but I'll tell you. They could actually make an argument that the dereliction of responsibility on behalf on behalf of the Interior Department, maybe they should sue the Interior Department for that money. Let them let them pony up for what they were robbed since it was their own inaction that allowed this to happen or their delayed yeah. action. Yeah, absolutely. All right, John Kane, always great to talk to you. This is a <laughs> wild story. It's it was Crazy actually story. so much more so much uh, worse. But also uh, better in the sense that it really does, as so many of these stories that we talked to you about, it really does, you know, present a sort of microcosm of this of this relationship, right? Over and over and over, you can see all the big things yep. made small and compact and understandable. If you just yes. look at each each uh, each of these sort of fights as their own discrete entities, and so it <laughs> is always useful to have you on here to tell us all of the ins and outs. So uh, we really appreciate it. Tell our listeners, please, uh, where they can go to find your your radio show and your podcast. Well, my, my radio show is Resistance Radio, and that gets put up as a podcast. You can find it on any of the normal podcast platforms. Uh, but it also airs in New York City on WBAI and in Washington, D.C. on WPFW. My podcast, which is Let's Talk Native, is also um, on all of the the, the common uh, podcast platforms. So you just search Let's Talk Native with John Kane or Resistance Radio with John and Regan, and you can find, uh, find the programs. Um, but, you know, like I said, I, I got to say it one more time. The undercurrent of racism in this relationship and the unequal playing field is really what this is all about. And look, and if you have disparity from white people to native people, I'm sorry. There's I know people don't like hearing it, but that's that's the definition of racism. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very clear. <laughs> John, Nader, uh, John Cade. Sorry. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We're going to slide in a few last headlines here before we leave you for the day. I love talking to John Kane. Um, 
just got an email about the U.S. sanctioning yes. Iran's ballistic missile-related activities, which doesn't seem like a great sign, considering no. they're still trying to hammer out this new nuclear deal. That's right. And things really had seemed like they were going well, at least between the U.S. and Iran. And then you suddenly have Russia coming in and, and stirring things up a little bit with the, the sanctions relief that it wants. But this is not a great sign, I think. I agree with you. Uh, this stems from the Houthi attack on Saudi Arabia last week. Uh, the U.S. is uh, taking offense that this attack took place. And instead of, in, of blaming the Houthis, they're blaming the Iranians. But you're right. I mean, the timing couldn't be worse because, no. you know, they're supposed to be making progress on these issues, not uh, imposing new sanctions. Did you happen to see the breaking news about Bruce uh, Willis? Too? Yes, I did. Very, very Bruce sad. Bruce Willis suffering from aphasia. Bruce Willis, really one of my first crushes. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially heartbreaking. He was a superstar in the day. Yeah. He, um, he really yeah, is. he's got aphasia. They don't say uh, how he developed it. It can be, you can get it from a stroke, from a brain tumor, from illness, all different ways. It affects your cognitive abilities. And his daughter, Rumor, said that he was having trouble remembering things, remembering people. And he is stepping away from acting is what they're saying on Instagram. I wanted to ask you something, John. This is this is a been brewing for a little while. But I wanted to ask you what is going on in Pakistan, right? Has the, Imran Khan, yeah. it looks like he, he just lost a key ally. Don't ask me who that was. But he's, he's looking uh, at a, a no confidence vote. In Parliament. Right. This has been bubbling along for about six months now. You know, Imran Khan, because of his his earlier status as a, a soccer superstar, was it cricket. soccer or cricket? Cricket. Cricket superstar. Uh, he he was by far the most popular figure in Pakistan. His popularity just dwarfed everybody else around him. And one of the things that that saw some real success and goodwill at the beginning of his administration was he used some of his own vast wealth to uh, build hospitals around the country. Well, he's not really a politico. And on the surface of things, that that's a good thing. In this case, it it didn't allow him to build the political relationships necessary to get legislation passed. And couple that with the fact that Pakistan is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. So, yeah, he's a nice guy. Yeah, he spends his own money on the poor, but nothing's getting done. And so he's been more and more unpopular as time has passed over the last six months. Uh, there's a chance that he could lose this next uh, election. Yeah, Pakistan is inter Pakistan. This is at the beginning of the Belt and Road program. So I don't know if it's still true, but it was I was surprised uh, in the early days, Pakistan was the biggest recipient of Belt and Road funds for a while. I'm not sure if that is still true. And so it is interesting uh, that wouldn't that surprise me at all. It definitely was true in like 2016. Yeah. Uh, but it is interesting that India is going to play such a a pivotal role in the, in the sort of geopolitical crisis we find ourselves in now. Pakistan, uh, you know, getting all this funding from China. There's not a lot of not a lot of discussion of Pakistan's importance to to this. You know, I mean, we, Pakistan, I think. 
we're going to have to go before oh. we finish this conversation. Yeah, but maybe we, we can are. pick it back up tomorrow, especially with Sergey Lavrov yeah, let's in do India. That. Because I, you know, it's it's also right there, right? It's it's obviously China has been building that relationship. Pakistan's been building that relationship yes. for some time. Um, and, you know, but Pakistan and the United States have a very complicated, very complicated. Uh, security relationship. So, oh, yeah, yes. think on this, John, oh, yeah. and, and enlighten me tomorrow. To tomorrow. That's what I want. All right. Thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to the the producers here, as always, and our engineering team. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>